I have to believe that Jesus loves that song. He loves to hear his church sing that to him. And I've got to read Revelation chapter 5 because that song is taken straight from this classic text. If you remember, John, the apostle, was writing, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And as I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. And purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of, and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. I said at the beginning of the service, we're just here to practice for heaven, right? And that's a scene from heaven. And uh, we got to just get caught up in that a little bit, just a little bit this morning singing that song. Um. If you don't like that song, get used to it, because you're going to be singing that. We're going to be singing that for all eternity, or at least something like that. So anyway, thank you, Chris. I know we've been wanting to introduce that song for a while now, and appreciate you working so hard with our team, to, our worship team, to lead us in that. What a great, great song. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you a simple but life-defining question. It won't be difficult for you to answer because whether you realize it or not, you are constantly answering this question every day of your life. But by, by how you answer this question, by how you answer this question, I should say, is critical. If you get it right, you'll flourish If you get it wrong, you'll flounder. It's one of the most important questions in the world, second only to the most important question in the world, which is, who is God? I think you would agree with me, that's the most important question in the world, is who is God? 
But the second most important question is who are you? Who are you? And the first word or two that comes into our minds when asked that question, who are we, reveals a lot about how we view ourselves. And how we view ourselves impacts everything about ourselves. It impacts everything else in our lives. You see, throughout the course of our lives, all of us are building and maintaining an identity, oh, a way that we think about ourselves or that how we want others to think about us or how we assume they think about us. David Murray has written an excellent book that uh, we're reading together as pastoral staff and we read a chapter every week and discuss it in our, in our Tuesday uh, afternoon staff meeting and it's, the book's called Reset. Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture, and he wrote an excellent chapter on this subject in which he provides some, some examples of people whose identities have been influenced by various events or experiences or circumstances and decisions uh, in their lives. Let me read for you some of these examples. He talks about Andrew the Adulterer. After many years of faithful marriage, Andrew committed adultery while attending a conference away from home. Now, years later, his constant magnifying of his guilt and his minimizing of grace means that the first thought that pops into his mind when he thinks about himself is, I'm an adulterer. Fred the failure. Fred spent five stressful years trying to plant a church in a large city. He followed all the strategies that the successful church planters have used. He bought all the books and went to all the conferences, but all he had to show for it were were an ulcer, 30 or 40 regular members, and a part-time job at Walmart to support his family. All he can think about is, I'm a failed church planter. Simon the Strong. Simon's dad was a driven, successful man with high standards for his children. Illness was for weak people. Even though Simon was sick sick as a child, his father discouraged medications, pushed him out the door to school. He had to toughen up, suck it up, learn to be strong. Simon unconsciously, though understandably, adopted this macho identity, a strong driver, a hard worker, and carried it with him into adult life. Now, however, in his mid-40s, he's struggling to maintain the same level of energy and productivity. He keeps driving himself, resulting in constant fatigue and frustration at his limitations. Peter, the perfectionist. For Peter, everything has to be perfect. It was the same for his parents. If he got 95% on the exam, their first question would be, what happened to the other 5%? Now, 30 years later, his inherited perfectionism has turned him into a hypercritical husband and father. It has also paralyzed him at work. He's unable to submit a report, make a presentation, or give a speech if it isn't close to perfect. Even when his boss or colleagues praise him, he berates himself for one or two shortcomings that he can't stop thinking about. How about Seth the sinner? Seth attends a church that focuses mainly on sin. Justification, adoption, forgiveness, other important doctrines are really mentioned. If they are, they're only postscripts to lengthy tirades about what's wrong with people the church and the world, he has little or no sense of God's love or of being God's child. His only thought about himself is, I am a sinner. Or Justin the just. He says, I've met many Justins in the church. They always 
or usually answer my question, what do you do with, oh, I'm just a plumber, I'm just a salesman, I'm just a housewife. At the root of such answers is an unbiblical view of vocation, the wrong idea that only ministry callings are divine callings, that only overtly Christian work is worthwhile work. He concludes, he says, maybe you're Harry Hollywood modeling yourself after the latest Hollywood star, or perhaps you're Frank the Facebooker, equating your identity with the number of friends, followers, and likes you have on social media as you shape and mold your persona there. I added in my margin, Ken the pastor. It's not alliterated, even though you know I usually try to make things alliterated, but couldn't think of something to go with K, but Ken the pastor, and I wrote that in response to a very convicting quote from a pastor who confessed this. He said, quote, the worst thing that happened to me in ministry was when I forgot who I was in Christ. The second worst thing was when I tried to make what I did as a pastor fill that void. And like most men, I have the tendency to find my identity in my career. I let myself be defined by what I do for a living. Women, you tend to find your identity in your marriage or your family or the fact that you're single or don't have kids or can have kids. Students, you tend to find your identity in your grades, your degrees, your, maybe your sports or other activities that you participate in or excel in. And I think all of us have a tendency to allow ourselves to be defined by what others think of us, by the neighborhood that we live in, by the size of our house, the car we drive, by the clothes we wear, by our bank account or lack thereof, by our appearance, by our achievements, by our successes, by our failures. And these false identities are exposed when we ask ourselves the question, who am I? When you look in the mirror in the morning and you ask yourself, who am I? Who, who, who's looking back at you? Are you what you do? Are you what you've achieved? Are you what you've done right? In life, are you what you've done wrong in life? Are you what others think of you? Are you what the world says you are? See, if what we do uh, is what we are, if, if, if who we are is what we do, then we'll always need to be doing more. And achieving more in order to, to think and feel well about ourselves. If, 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 if we are what others say we are, then we'll always be trying to please people rather than pleasing God. If who we are is our marriage, our spouse, well then what happens to us when our spouse is unfaithful to us? Or our spouse abandons us and divorces us? If our identity is in our kids, what, what happens when our, our kids walk away from the Lord? What happens when our kids leave the house and they're no longer there? If, if your identity is in your grades or 
your athletic achievements, what happens when you fail the test? What happens when you don't get that scholarship that you were anticipating or you don't get accepted to that college that you really wanted to go to? This is why we must always remember who we are in Christ. And one of the traits of being sinful, which all of us are, is that we are forgetful, which means we need to be regularly reminded of the truth of God's word. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, and there's an interesting section in this letter that Paul, or excuse me, that Peter wrote to uh, the believers who were scattered all over Asia at the time, and he was challenging them to examine their faith in Christ, and in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, he says, for if these qualities are yours, and he just got done listing all these virtues and really fruits uh, that should be present in every, the life of every believer, he said, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, now listen to this, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Excuse me, for in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. But then notice what Peter goes on to say, verse 12, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right as long as, as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And that's really the job of every pastor, every preacher. Is What we're simply doing is stirring you up by way of reminder every week and just trying to come up with creative ways of doing that so you don't think we're just preaching the same sermon every Sunday, right? Why? Why do we need to be continually stirred up by way of reminder? Because we're like Jason Bourne, right? We've got a case of amnesia, spiritual amnesia, right? You remember the, the Bourne movies, right? And he, 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 he didn't know who he was. He was confused and frustrated trying to figure out who he was and where he came from and where he was going. And I think we're a lot like that as Christians. We have a case of spiritual amnesia in regards to our identity in Christ. We forget who we are in Christ and we allow our identity to be defined by other things besides him. Well, we could say we have what the world refers to as an identity crisis. And that term, identity crisis, is used to describe an individual or an institution or an organization that is experiencing a state of confusion regarding their nature, purpose, or direction. In other words, they're not sure who they are or where they're going. And I don't want that to be true of any of us, so my goal today is to stir us up by way of reminder about who God says we are in Christ. And so I want to ask you that 
critical question again, who am I or who are you, but I want to ask it more accurately. And I think the the more accurate question is, who does God say you are? Who, Who does God say I am? Because it really doesn't matter what you say you are or what others say you are. What really matters is what God says. And so rather than thinking or listening, I should say, to who we think we are, who others think we are, or what they say we are, we need to listen to the one who knows us best and loves us the most. And thankfully, throughout the Bible, God tells us over and over and over again what he thinks of us as a result of our union with Christ, or as it's often referred to in the New Testament as our identity in Christ. And the clearest explanation in Scripture of who we are in Christ is found in the book of Ephesians, particularly in the very first chapter. And so I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. And as I'm turning there, again, I'm assuming you're familiar with uh, this book. In fact, this was the first book that I taught um, when we started Lakeside Bible Church some 20 years ago. I just felt like this was... uh, just such a foundational book that I wanted this to kind of be the concrete, if you will, on, 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 the, on which this church was built. And so uh, really the book of Ephesians can be broken up into two sections. Uh, chapters one through three, Paul describes the believer's position. And then in chapters four through six, Paul describes the believer's practice. And, and chapter four, verse one is the, the hinge on which the book turns, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And so he spends the first three chapters talking about our calling in Christ, and then the last three chapters talking about our walk in Christ or our life as Christians. So Paul started by explaining who we are as Christians, and he ended by exhorting us to live like it, to to practice our position. In other words, understanding who we are is crucial because it determines and affects how we live. You may have read that children's novel years ago, uh, Little Lord Fauntleroy. Anybody ever heard that story, Little Lord Fauntleroy? Um, It's really a charming story about a little boy who grew up in poverty in the ghettos of New York City with his widowed mother, and one day he's visited by a man who reveals to him that his grandfather is a wealthy English earl, the Earl of Daring Court. And uh, he had a disinherited son, which was the boy's father, and he had disinherited him because he married an American woman, but now his father was dead. Uh, and now he's the only legal heir of the family fortune. And so his grandfather had sent uh, a representative to America to invite him to come live in his fabulous estate as Lord Fauntleroy and eventually succeed him as the Earl of Daring Court. And the Earl's representative described what life will be like as Lord Fauntleroy. All the wealth, all the power, all the glory uh, are, are going to be his to enjoy as a royal heir. And although he'll have some limited benefits in America, he'll have to wait until he gets to England to enjoy the full benefits of being Lord 
Fauntleroy, but the representative stresses how important it is that he begins thinking and acting like Lord Fauntleroy now because he is Lord Fauntleroy and Lord Fauntleroy should act and think like Lord Fauntleroy. Well, we as Christians are in a similar position. The Bible describes the great riches, the great privileges that belong to us in Christ. And when God saved us, he placed us in his family and considers us one of his sons, his daughters. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ. Wealth and power and glory are ours to enjoy as children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And yet while we enjoy some of these things now, in large measure, we're going to have to wait until we get to heaven to fully enjoy our inheritance. But at the same time, we are children of God at present, and we need to think and act like children of God. And so, the first thing that should come to our minds and come out of our mouths when we ask ourselves, who am I, is I am God's beloved child, based on my connection to Jesus Christ. And if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians and Paul's letters, um, there's one phrase that Paul repeated more than any other phrase in his letters. In fact, he repeated it 35 times in this letter alone, uses it 11 times in the first 14 verses, and it's the phrase what? You know what I'm talking about? In Christ. In Christ. And I think that little phrase is the key to understanding Paul's theology, the book of Ephesians, and the Christian life in general. Because to Paul, to be a Christian was to be in Christ. This was his way of expressing the vital union that every one of us as Christians has with Christ. We are connected with Christ. We are united with Christ. We're related to Christ to the point that what is true of him is true of us. This was Paul's way of describing our relationship with Christ. It defines our position as Christians. It's who we are. We are in Christ. And again, Paul knew that understanding who we are in Christ is the key to understanding how to live our lives as Christians. And so let's just take a a quick moment to survey verses 3 through 14 and simply observe what God says about who we are in Christ. Now, how many of you have seen the movie Overcomer? That was the latest Kendrick's movie that came out, okay? Some of you have. Uh, This was one of my favorite scenes in the movie when the principal told the main character, this young girl who had been raised by her grandmother, uh, her father had abandoned her, and uh, I'm not sure what happened to her mother, she was no longer in the picture, and uh, she was a little thief who had gotten saved, who came to know Christ, and the principal wanted to help her understand her identity in Christ, and so she told her to go home and open up the book of Ephesians and uh, to write down, make a list of everything that Paul said that she was. And so 
It was neat to just see her make this list. And so let's look at this list. Um, Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So number one, we're blessed. Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we've been chosen That we would be holy and blameless before him. We are holy and blameless. Verse 5, he predestined us. Add that to the list. To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. We are adopted. We are beloved. In him, verse 7, we have redemption. We've been redeemed. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, we've been forgiven. Which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance. So we have an inheritance. Add that to the list. Having predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So there's another thing to add to the list. We are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We are God's possession. We belong to God. Those are just a few of the things that God says we are as a result of our union with Christ. And the more we we study the Bible, the more we discover who we are in Christ, and the longer our list should become. I want to suggest something to you. This is maybe a little homework assignment, because we all love homework, right? I want to encourage you to, to come up with two lists. Craft two lists. And the first list is just just write down all the things that describe you and that you let yourself be defined by, both positive and negative. This could be your roles, um, your personality traits, your strengths, your weaknesses, your, your successes, your failures. Make a list. List of things that describe you and that might even define you. Like when you think about, well, who am I? Well, I'm a... I'm a pastor, I'm also a a father, I'm a husband, I'm a procrastinator, I'm a, you write fill in the blank, what is it that defines you? And then make a second list and, and write down the things that God says about you as a reminder of what truly defines you. And maybe you even want to write those lists side by side, maybe just take a piece of paper, one piece of paper and draw a line right down the middle. And, and maybe, you know, one side is what I think of me, and the other side is what God says of me, about me. 
what I think about me and what God says about me. That, that's a game changer right there, by the way. That, that could, if you've never thought about your life in, that, in those two categories, that could revolutionize your Christian life. Because you'll stop thinking about what you think about yourself and start living according to what God says about you and what God thinks about you. It's a paradigm shift, radical paradigm shift. Let me provide a starter list or a sample list that maybe will help us this morning recognize and recover our true identity in Christ. Okay, so you can write some of these down. They're on the, the uh, notes that I've provided this morning. Again, this is just, I mean, you, could, you can go online, by the way, and, and type in, in a Google search, you know, uh, our identity in Christ, and you can come up with list after list after list after list. I mean, we're talking like lists with hundreds of things on them. I'm just going to list six things. So this is just scratching the surface here. But these were the ones that came to my mind that, that I think were most helpful uh, to me. And again, what are we doing? We're going to God's word and saying, what, is, what does God say about me, specifically in relationship to my connection with Jesus Christ, my union with Christ? Number one, and this is more Old Testament, so... We, it's not as clear to see that this is my identity in Christ, but I think it's important. This is a good starting point that we are created in the image of God and are fearfully and wonderfully made. And of course, these are all rooted in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we were made in God's likeness. Psalm, or excuse me, Genesis 5, 1 uh, mentions that as well. Says it again in Genesis chapter 9. But then I'm sure you're more familiar with uh, Psalm, Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. And then, of course, Ephesians 2.10, you may remember this verse. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In other words, God made us for a purpose. In fact, some translations, uh, instead of saying we are God's workmanship, they translate it, we are God's masterpiece. And so we're created in the image of God and are fearfully and wonderfully made. Secondly, we are beloved children of God who he specially chose and adopted to be a member of his family. I love Isaiah 43. This is a passage I often read uh, to someone when I'm visiting them at the hospital, especially when they're about to go under the knife or some serious surgery or something. Isaiah 43 Verse 1, but now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
When I pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I, will give, I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. And of course, we've been learning in Romans how uh, we are adopted children of the Lord. Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 15, we've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And in that same chapter, we learn that there's absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And again, there's verse after verse after verse that we could look at, uh, talking about how we've been chosen um, by God, how we've been adopted as his children. I'll leave you to look up those on your own. Number three, we are redeemed by God and reconciled to him through the death of Christ and forgiven for and freed from sin. We are redeemed by God and reconciled to him through the death of Christ and forgiven for and freed from sin. Again, all of this is coming straight out of the book of Romans, right? And if you've been with us in our study, Romans 5.1 talks about, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That same chapter, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Chapter 6, verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. We understand that we died with Christ and now we've died also to sin. We're free. We're free from sin. Chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're forgiven from the guilt of our sin, the penalty of our sin, and we're also freed from the power of sin. Again, lots of verses to look up there. Um, Number four, we are new creatures in Christ who are no longer defined by our past. I mean, that's that's the worth the price of admission right there, isn't it? That, That we are new creatures in Christ who are no longer defined by our past. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all things, uh, behold, all things have come new. And uh, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about how we used to be objects of God's wrath, uh, right? We were, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we're alive in Christ. And I love what Philippians chapter 3 verse 13 says Paul, after describing his past life and all the things he was and did to try to earn his righteousness and earn his way to heaven, he says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, talking about um, wanting to be like Christ, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So stop living in the rearview mirror right, as they say. No, no need for that. You're a new creature in Christ. You're no longer defined by your past. Number five, we're instruments of God who he uses to proclaim the good news of salvation through Christ to others. 
We're instruments of God who he uses to proclaim the good news of salvation through Christ to others. Uh, of course, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we've been focusing a lot on that um, in this past year. Uh, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so God, we're making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I love the description of us, God's people, God's church in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What, what a mercy, not just to not be uh, punished for our sin, but to be able to be used by God to tell others how they don't have to be punished for their sin. And then number six, we are destined for heaven where we will be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ. We are destined for heaven where we will be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ. And again, we're learning in the book of Romans, Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Philippians says that our citizenship is in heaven. Chapter 3, verse 20. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, who, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that, his, that he has even, sub, even to subject all things to himself. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God. Well, let's start in verse 1. It's even better. It gets better. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So as Murray says in this helpful little book, our ultimate identity is not just to be in Christ, but to be like Christ. There's no greater identity in all the world. There's a little <clears throat> section in Luke that would be easily skipped over. I think I've skipped over it for years, to be honest, but it struck me a, a while back as I was reading this, Luke chapter 10, verse 17, this is after the disciples were sent out to minister um, and to share the gospel for the first time. <clears throat> they came back very happy, excited. This is Luke 10, 17, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Woohoo! And we had a blast out there, man. The demons were listening to us. They were doing what we told them to do. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. So Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. I gave you that power. I gave you that authority. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In other words, what should get all of us most excited is not that you fill in the blank, that the spirits are subject to you, whatever that is in your life. Fill in the blank. Do not rejoice in this, that you fill in the blank, that your kids are walking with the Lord, or that your marriage is going great, or that you are still rocking and rolling as, as, as that attorney or as that businessman and making a ton of money, and, or you're still in good health. Or all these people are coming to Christ through your ministry. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your names are recorded in heaven. In other words, that you are saved. That you're a Christian. That you've been born again. That you're a child of God. That's what should excite you. From the moment you wake up and motivate you throughout the day, right? And be the last thing that you're thinking about as you go to bed. Not what a terrible day it was and this went bad and this happened and then I just didn't work out and my kids are still not walking with the Lord. And No, guess what? I can rejoice tonight because my name is written in the book of life. Amen? I told you about the movie Overcomer. I want to show you my favorite scene. And uh, they're going to throw it up here. And uh, I think they just do a great job capturing the essence of this whole question, who am I? Well, let, let's watch this. And maybe just, yeah, turn those lights off. We'll be good. If I asked you who you are, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm a basketball coach. And if that's stripped away? Well, I'm also a history teacher. Okay. We take that away. Who are you? Well, I'm a husband. I'm a father. And God forbid that should ever change. But if it does, who are you? I don't understand this game. It's not a game, man. Who are you? Um, I'm a white American male. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. (laughs) Is there anything else? Well, I'm a Christian. And what's that mean? It means follower of Christ. And how important is that? It's very important. Interesting. Hi, so far down your list. Okay, wait a minute. I could have easily said Christian first. Yeah, but you didn't. Look, John. Your identity will be tied to whatever you give your heart to. Doesn't sound like the Lord asked first place. You're calling me a bad Christian? Let me be a little direct. Last time you were here, you said you'd pray for me. Did you? No. No. 
for someone who knows the Lord. You're acting like somebody who doesn't, which makes me wonder. What have you allowed to define you? When you lost your team, it didn't just disappoint you, it devastated you. Something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, it'll change your whole perspective. I'm sure if you're like me, you can relate to that scene in that it may not have been a basketball team that you lost or a game you lost or something, but what, what is it if you lost it would devastate you? Because oftentimes God will remove whatever it is in our lives that we've let become our idol, what we've allowed to define us, what's become our identity. And he removes that to expose that so that he could regain first place in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to live our lives in light of who you say we are. And Lord, that's not an easy task. And so we just ask that you would grant us grace to remember and not forget all the wonderful ways that you express your love for us and how you explain to us in your word what you think of us and and who we are because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow us to leave here today rejoicing that no matter how our life is going, good or bad, that we are Christians, that our names are written in the book of life. May that put a song in our heart and a skip in our step as we leave this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.